Good morning, church. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I believe it is page 807 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you. I'm very excited to be kicking off uh, or continuing our, our Advent season from the pulpit this morning. We are looking at Matthew 1 and 2 over the next couple weeks. And Lord willing, if I am faithful to do my job over the next couple weeks, we will all love Jesus more deeply. Um, but I will warn you, this, this study may ruin nativity sets for you. Now, I love nativity sets as much as the next person, truly. This is, I'm not here to knock nativity sets. But the typical nativity set has wise men and shepherds there around the manger. And the thing is that they probably were not there at the same time. Now again, I'm not losing sleep over this, but I think unintentionally that typical traditional nativity set provides a snapshot for a more serious issue in our culture broadly and perhaps even our churches specifically, namely that we have a weak biblical literacy Perhaps we sometimes have a vague idea of the stories of the Bible, a vague idea of maybe even differences between some of the gospel accounts, but we can't really describe those differences in any significant way other than just a fun fact. Oh, did you know probably the wise men and shepherds weren't there at the same time? But that is our loss. We have four gospel evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and their distinctions from one another are not in conflict with each other, but rather they highlight different aspects of God's glory because he is too glorious for just one person's retelling of his story. Only two of our Gospels have birth narratives in them, Matthew and Luke. And the differences between those narratives are beautiful and they make us love God more deeply for the different aspects of God's grace that they describe. Luke's gospel has a genealogy of Jesus that starts at Jesus and it works backwards. Jesus was the son of, the son of, the son of, all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. This is in line with some of Luke's primary themes of uh, an, an audience. He says at the beginning, oh, most excellent Theophilus, that's a Greek name. So there is an aspect of Luke's gospel that is specifically highlighting that Jesus came for all of humanity, not just the Jew, but the Gentile also. If you will look down at your Bible, Matthew 1 starts with a genealogy, but it's significantly different. Matthew starts with Abraham and works forward toward Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on. Matthew is speaking to specifically more of a Jewish audience. That's not just in these two gospel accounts, birth narratives, but throughout the rest of those gospels, those, those differences are highlighted. Matthew more often describes things in a way that is harsh toward the Jewish religious leaders because they should have known better. Luke more often is speaking toward, uh, again, just the fact that Jesus came for, for all people. 
That's not the only differences between these genealogies. One goes backwards toward Adam and one starts at Abraham and moves forward. Uh, math, or sorry, Luke's genealogy has 76 names, I counted. And you'll notice at the end of our passage this morning in uh, Matthew 1:17, we see that Matthew does not have 76 names, if you're quick at math. He highlights that there are 14 generations from Adam to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 generations from Babylon to Christ. Matthew's genealogy is, again, doing something. He has a different intention. He's not trying to literally recount the generations for a purely historical recounting of those generations. He has other purposes. He's trying to highlight something. He, he goes from this person was the father of this person, this person was the father of this person, sometimes skipping some generations. In the same way, using that, that, that term fathering in a sort of metaphorical way. You could imagine uh, Washington was the father of Lincoln, something like that. We know that he wasn't literally the father, um, but it's, it's metaphorical. Matthew is intentionally skipping over generations to, to draw our attention to this connection between Abraham and David and the exile and Jesus. He is recapping the entire Old Testament in a nutshell and connecting it to Jesus. He is highlighting the gracious sovereignty of God that works through his people to bring about his anointed Messiah King, who was God himself in the flesh. If we were ever to be tempted to think that the Old Testament is just a bunch of stories, then what we're being tempted toward is to not believe what God has said about himself and the way that he works. And that can bleed over to us missing out on the joy of celebrating the truth of who Jesus is, namely, our King come to us. Sometimes we get so zoomed in on our specific circumstance that we don't see the way that God is working in the big picture. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus reveals to the disciples that all of the Old Testament Scripture were speaking about Him. There is one single story in this book, and it finds its climax in Jesus Christ. I have an extended quote from Tim Keller that's on this idea of the, the story of the Bible being a unified story on that, that finds its climax in Jesus Christ. So bear with me as I read this, this longer quote. God created the world and created us to serve and enjoy Him and the world that He made. But human beings turned away from serving Him. They sinned and marred themselves and the creation. Nevertheless, God promised to not abandon them, though it was his perfect right, but to rescue them despite the guilt and condemnation they were under and despite their inherently flawed hearts and character. To do this, first God called out one family in the world to know him and serve him. Then he grew that family into a nation entered into a, an abiding and personal covenant relationship with them and gave them his law to guide their lives. The promises of blessing if they obey it and a system of offerings and sacrifices to deal with their sins and failures. However, human nature is so disordered by sin that despite all these privileges and centuries of God's patience, 
Even his covenant people who had received the law, promises, and sacrifices turned away from him. It looked hopeless for the human race, but God became flesh and entered the world of time, space, and history. He lived a perfect life. Then he went to the cross to die. When he was raised from the dead, it was revealed that he had come to fulfill the law with his perfect life, to offer one final sacrifice, taking the curse that we deserved and thereby securing the promised blessings for those, uh, for those, for us uh, by free grace. Now those who believe in him are united with God despite our sin. And this changes the people of God from the single nation state into a new international multi-ethnic fellowship of believers in every nation and culture. We now serve him and our neighbor as we wait in hope for Jesus to return and renew all creation, sweeping away death and all suffering. That is what we are going to see in this passage this morning, the genealogy of Jesus. My aim is to strengthen your faith to strengthen your belief that God is always working and always accomplishing his redemptive purposes and to arouse in you a more true allegiance to your king who has come as one of us to restore our relationship to him. Let's read now from Matthew 1. If you would stand with me in honor of the reading of our sermon text. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
giving us a word that reveals you in ways that are so rich and beautiful. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew and the things that it highlights for us. Would you help us to see now with eyes of faith the ways that you have been working throughout human history, even up until this day? Would you help us to see Jesus as the true king who has come to redeem us and to reconcile us to you? May we leave here this morning being more humbled as people of our king, ready to walk in obedience to him and to uh, build his kingdom here on earth until we see him again. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We were made for a king. That's my first point. We were made for a king. We need a king because we were made in the image of a king. And we were made to image a king. To better understand why Matthew starts with Abraham, we need to get some context on Abraham. So Abraham shows up in Genesis 12. And just a quick shout out to George. Is George in here? I feel like I saw him at some point. He's not in here right now. Uh, well, give him a shout out for me later, Regina. Uh, last night, uh, we hosted a, an event for the Navigators downstairs, and he uh, taught on Galatians 3 and just did an outstanding job. I was so proud of my brother to say like, yes, that is my covenant church member expounding the word so faithfully. Um, but in talking about Galatians 3, he, he went back to Genesis 12 and gave the context of, of where Abraham came from. So the Bible doesn't start with Genesis 12, obviously. It starts with Genesis 1. And we see at the beginning of Genesis that we were made to be vice kings, ruling and reigning and exercising dominion along with God and on behalf of God in his creation. Our God took his formless and void creation and gave it form and filled it and Adam and Eve first, and then later Noah and his wife, were specifically blessed and charged with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with more image bearers. This idea of being God's image bearer, we can imagine Caesar who might want to build statues of himself throughout his his. Uh, domain to demonstrate that that is where he rules and reigns. This is what people in our created state were meant to do on behalf of God. We were supposed to bear his image, demonstrating his rule and reign throughout his creation. Obviously, sin affected that. And the problem for both Adam and Eve and then again for Noah and his wife is that once sin entered the world, their multiplication just leads to multiplying more and more rebels who exchange the glory of God for a lie and worship and serve the creation rather than the creator God. And so at Genesis 12, we see something different that happens. God steps in and intervenes in a unique way. God calls a pagan 
Canaanite man to himself to create a new kind of people in the earth. And I, we just, these stories might be so familiar if you have grown up in the church, but let's not let the story of Abram first uh, become too familiar to us that we, we don't let the grace of God just hit us afresh. God demonstrates in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 17, where he more fully lays out his covenant with Abraham, that if we are ultimately and finally to be made right with the living God, he is going to have to make that happen by his grace. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he says, blessed are you, Abram, and I will multiply you. And I will make you the father of nations, not just one, but, but many nations. This is what kicks off our opening paragraph in Matthew. This whole passage is a nutshell retelling of the ways that God was not only gracious and merciful in the specific details, he was not only being kind to Abraham in that moment, but he was simultaneously accomplishing his redemptive purposes through his servants. There was nothing special about Abraham. And just because an ethnic people with all the boundaries and distinctions of an ethnic people physically came from him, it was never about God creating a physical ethnic people to himself. The New Testament authors in in Romans 4, Galatians 3 highlight this so clearly. Galatians 3, 7 and 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This covenant we see first made in Genesis 17, we see most truly and greatly fulfilled in Revelation 7, when around the throne of the Lamb there is a multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Matthew is highlighting that Jesus is the true king, the true son of obedience and faith that comes from Abraham. This first paragraph, uh, verses 2 to the first half of verse 6, encapsulates so much of Old Testament history. I mean, it's amazing just how it's just a 30,000-foot view But you go from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob. We know that Judah ended up in Egypt. Remember when the brothers went down because of the famine. Perez is born by Tamar. We'll come back to that a little bit later. At some point here, the law is given. A people are made, created. They, they They grow in Egypt. 
At some point, the Lord delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, brings them to himself to be his covenant people. The name Nashon is listed in Numbers as the chief of the tribe of Judah. Salmon, perhaps, was born in the wilderness. He is the father of Boaz by Rahab. We'll come back to her again a little later. And then we get into the time of the judges, where Obed, uh, Boaz and Ruth have Obed, then Obed um, is the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. We see that we need a king. We have something curious as you look at the progression of this first paragraph, where the book of Deuteronomy warns Israel against longing for a king like the other nations. And yet, the book of Judges clearly highlights the problems that arise when there is no king in the land. It says multiple times, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this is seen as a very bad thing. Judges is a wild, wild book. It is violent like shockingly violent. It's supposed to shock you. It's supposed to be a wake-up call, and it's highlighting this is what happens when there's no king in the land. And so we are left longing for a king. I think we experience this in the same way today, do we not? We live in a time of the sovereign self, as Tim Keller called it this hyper-individualism. Follow your heart. All you have to do to find happiness is to just dig down, figure out what your dreams are, and then live out those dreams. But we know that this doesn't bring true satisfaction and fulfillment. We long for a king. And so in the second half of verse 6, God gives his people a king. But there's a significant omission here because the first king that God gave was Saul, if you remember. But crucially, Jesus does not come from Saul's line. God is again intervening in the history of his people by his grace to demonstrate that he does not look at the outward appearance the way people do, but he looks at the human heart. There was a certain kind of king that God wanted his eventual Messiah to come from. Yes, we need a king, but not just any kind of king will do. Saul was God's anointed servant for a time, but God did not make the covenant with Saul that he made with David. David, like Abraham, demonstrated a joyful, obedient trust in God. That is precisely the kind of kingly rule that leads to a flourishing for God's people and leads to a restored relationship between God and his people. However, it's not all roses. Because you notice in the second half of verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Even here, 
there's an indication that a sinful king can only do so much. And so, point number two, we need a better kind of king. We were made for a king, but we need a better kind of king than just the kings that are described here in this second paragraph from verses 6 to 11. If you are unfamiliar with the story, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You notice that's not David's wife. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And then when she became pregnant, he hid that sin. He tried to hide that sin first by murdering Uriah. And then on from there, the rest of this paragraph, it, it, it just goes downhill. We know that all of the names mentioned in the first paragraph from verses 2 to 6 were sinners. We know that because all people are sinners. But this 30,000-foot view of this second paragraph, highlighting the kings of Judah specifically, shows us a picture of some of the most heinous, grotesque sins that you can imagine. Solomon went on to father Rehoboam. You can read about his story in 1 Kings chapter 12. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam, at, at that point, they're brothers, and the kingdom splits. So all of the northern tribes of Israel are called Israel, and Judah is, is split off in the south. There's now civil unrest. There's brokenness because of the sins of their father kings. Even the best kings in this paragraph are not so good that they overcome the problems with the rest of the, the bad kings, if you will. Asaph, who's called Asa in 1 Kings 15, he's one of the good ones. But it says, he was wholly true to the Lord, but not all of the high places are torn down. There's still idolatry in the kingdom of Judah. Ahaz is called Ahab in 1 Kings 16. He is one of the worst offenders. 1 Kings 16.30 says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab burnt his son as an offering to a pagan god. Child sacrifice. It's, it's almost hard to fathom. Ahab perverted the temple and turned it into a place of uh, divination. He, he wanted his priests to start reading the entrails of, of the sacrifices Truly, truly, taking all that makes the Israelites distinct as God's people and making them just like the rest of the world, practicing divination on the very instruments of God's temple that he gave his people so that they could have a right relationship with him. His... Uh, heir a little later, Manasseh, is somehow even worse. He also sacrificed his children 
to try to have success in battles. Under him, there was state-sanctioned Baal worship. 2 Kings 21.16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the time Manasseh's grandson Josiah comes along, the message is clear. We need a better kind of king. And again, Josiah is one of the good ones. But what was so good about Josiah? Under his rule in 2 Kings 21, the priest finds an old dusty copy of the law that had been forgotten about. The people had not had the law for generations now. They've just kind of lost track of it because of the idolatry that they were practicing. They find this copy of the law out of storage. And upon reading it, Josiah tore his clothes, 2 Kings 21.11. He goes on to enact significant reforms in getting back to a right form of worship, the, the prescribed forms of worship that God had given. The good kings point us back to God by humbly pointing to our need for repentance and demonstrating the joy of obedience to God's word. But they cannot reconcile us to God in the truest sense. What's highlighted by the second paragraph in Matthew is that we need a king that doesn't come with his own sin. Because even a faithful king will only get us so far in pointing us back toward God. And so in verse 12, or in verse 11 into 12, God intervenes again by his grace and his mercy in a way that we might not think of as so gracious or merciful as we're experiencing it. But God doesn't let this cycle of idolatry and heinous sin continue. He intervenes in grace by disciplining his children. Any Israelite that was still thinking it was about trusting in an earthly power for their deliverance, God allows that misplaced trust to be completely revealed as a foundation of sand. In the Lord's kindness, he removed their line of kings from the throne. Here's the thing. Israel didn't need a better Nebuchadnezzar to bring them back from exile. They had already had extremely powerful earthly kings. Coming back into political power would have only brought Israel comfort, but it could never raise Israel above their spiritual station. A sinful king ruling over sinful people can never truly reconcile us to the holy God. But praise God, point number three, our king became one of us. Amen? Verses 12 to 17 are remarkably different from the rest of this passage in that there's not a ton of stories we can turn to. 
in the Old Testament. Everything from verse 2 to verse 11, that's a huge section of the Old Testament. In verses 12 to 17, we don't have the stories of these people because they had lost all of their earthly rank and prominence. These were exiles brought back to their homeland. But it was this setting in which God was pleased to send his son to become the anointed Messiah King. He was not too ashamed to come from a family line full of sinners and outsiders. Look at the four women that Matthew includes in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Each of these women is connected either to outrageous sin or they are themselves Gentiles. In Christ's kingdom, it doesn't matter what sin you may have committed, and it doesn't matter if you were a man or a woman, young or old. It doesn't matter if you live in a palace or you don't have a house of any kind. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew or one of the thousands of Gentile ethnicities. We have a king who was truly historically born in Rome-occupied Palestine. And when given the chance, he repeatedly did not inaugurate an earthly kingdom, but instead embodied true obedience and manifested the gracious divine plan for God to be reunited perfectly and completely with his people. He went before us as our king and champion to the cross, He went before us to face death as the true righteous image bearer. And he was victorious in that battle. Hallelujah. He rose from the the grave leading a host of captives. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is currently ruling and reigning, but not disconnected from his people, just biding his time. Just as God was always graciously working to achieve his sovereign purposes under the old covenant, so too is he working to bring about all he has promised under the new covenant. No matter who you are, by faith you can be a child of the king. Our king has come. And no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, He is using all things to make you ready for the day when you will see your king face to face in all of his glory and power and dominion. Church, let's start practicing our bowing. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, our Messiah, the anointed king, who is a better kind of king than we would have dreamt up. Thank you for the history of the Old Testament that foreshadows so many truths in a a negative way. It foreshadows the ways that we cannot atone for our own sin. It foreshadows the way that we need atonement, that we need a king to go before us. But ultimately, we need a sinless king to be the representative of sinful people before the holy God. 
Thank you, Jesus, for being our Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you humbled yourself, taking on human flesh, taking on the form of a servant. Thank you for calling us friend. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to comfort and help us. May we leave this place this morning as people of our King. Would you build your kingdom here on earth, here in Savannah as it is in heaven? We affirm that you are seated on the throne. You are upholding the world by the word of your power. Would you use us to build your kingdom? Would you use us to to fill the earth with more image bearers? Not just biologically, but, but children of the promise. May we be more faithful in evangelism and discipleship sharing the good news of our King who has come. I ask all of this in His mighty name. Amen.